everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Your host today is Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief. The world is heading towards becoming cashless. But is such a thing even possible in a country where a box of bubblegum can sub in for change at the Kushk? A McKinsey report in 2018 found that only 2% of Egypt's payment transactions were cashless and accounted for only 4.4% of Egypt's GDP. According to the same report, there were almost 23 million debit, credit, and prepaid cards in circulation. And while all these could be used as payment options, the report found that only 3.5% of debit cards and 1.5% of credit cards were used to make a purchase that year. On the flip side, Egypt is one of the fastest growing markets for mobile internet penetration. The number of mobile subscribers in Egypt hit 95.3 million last December. Remember, we're a nation of 100 million. In a country where a majority of people still don't have access to bank accounts, credit cards, or online payment options, but do have a smartphone, the ground was fertile for fintech startups. But as with many things, we were late bloomers in putting two and two together. Mobile commerce had been around since the 1990s, and we were also lagging behind our African neighbors who were quick to spot the opportunity there. Kenya launched the acclaimed mobile payment service M-Pesa in 2007, with Tanzania following suit in 2008. And that was the world Sahar Salema found herself in when she founded T-Pay in 2014. A software engineer by trade, Salama spent much of her professional life working in link development, where she came about consumer billing and provisioning solutions for network operators. With payment options struggling to find mass acceptance, she realized network operators had already overcome these obstacles, primarily through their billing system, which was widely accepted and accessible throughout the country. And that's where she found herself where preparation meets opportunity. Today, TPay is among the top players in mobile commerce in the country and the region, with services available in over 18 countries, working through 38 mobile network operators and processing almost 51 million transactions per day. TPay is also among the contributors to us closing the gap with our neighbors. The January Digital 2020 report says 39% of Egyptians aged 16 to 64 made an online purchase using a mobile device. Still lower than Kenya's 51%, but an improvement nonetheless. Along with Faudi and others, Tipe was one of the companies that shepherded fintech in Egypt towards becoming a major investment play. Tipe were incubated by tech investors A15 and made the first wholesale acquisition of a fintech company in Egypt when they acquired their competitors DCB Egypt. Shortly after, they made headlines again becoming the region's very first dragon in 2018 when A15 sold their 76% stake in TPay to Helios Investments, returning a multiple of the entire A15 fund. Sahar sat down with us to discuss the challenges she faced launching in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE simultaneously, and how she then scaled that to over 18 markets and 38 mobile operators. She talked to us about what it means to choose the best partner for you, 
and how to approach entrepreneurship like a software engineer. Sahar, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Actually, it's my pleasure. Very excited to be with you guys today. Our first question for every guest is the same. This isn't CEO therapy. It's not a therapy session for you folks when you come on. But we're asking all of our guests to start by answering the same question. And that's what toy or what activity or what hobby from your childhood had the most impact on your success in business? Probably anything related to solving problem, puzzles. Puzzles. Yeah, actually, even now, compared to all of this nice, attractive world of games, I'm somehow tempted to those very old-fashioned kind of <laughs> games, which is like finding patterns, fixing puzzles and all of this only, by the really? way. Even strategy, like not anything, just like the fast maneuvers, okay. you know, to do okay. things, you know, somehow. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording about starting a business when you're not 20. And uh, I assure you, you're not terribly old, uh, at least by my standards. But what made you decide, you know, this is something for me that I wanted to, to start my own business? It is not a decision. It didn't come to me that a decision that I want to build my own uh, startup and I don't know, like uh, get investors. And it wasn't like this because my background was a little bit technical and product oriented kind of uh, experience. You were at Link Development, right? Yes, but it was like 12 years before the industry of telco. Okay. okay. In a completely different industry, which is Bordeaux, very, very, very niche. And I was lucky enough to start my career in the niche market of high-tech industry. Take us back. What did you study in university and how did that open this up to you? I studied software engineering in the American University in Cairo here. So I was a software engineer. And since I graduated, it was one of the companies opting for employees. I already got an offer in the very last year. So I just finished. Two months later, I started. And there is no comparable company. It was just like very unique setup of company. It's German. And this guy decided to invest all of the software development from Egypt. So the manufacturing, it was in the US and uh, Germany. The company headquarters is there, but he decided to build all of the engineering work from inside and the hardware engineer. I mean, lots of engineers, not only software and designers, etc. So um, it was very interesting, new, you know, and new in terms of the technology, the industry. Our clients were like anybody from the producers of toothbrush to Ministry of Defense no producing way. missiles. And we were out of Egypt running our software in the production lines of Siemens and Bosch and uh, the French wow. Ministry of Defense. So he was a very humble very focused guy, very passionate. He was not a manager, by the way. He was an entrepreneur only. I built up all of those skills of like the diagnosis and the creation and the engagement with everybody comfortably and not being afraid of any partner, any problem, anything. It's just like it always worked. Mm -hmm. It will work. Okay. You know? okay. So I learned a lot. I think he was a mentor in all sense about how to do things um, and reach results only based on passion, you know. What was his name? Probably. Grand Boktur. And have you told him uh, what the experience meant to you? He passed away. He passed away. Okay. Okay. He passed away. He was a very influential first character in my career, in all positive, of course. And um, if you reflect back on everything you learn, you learn a lot. 
not in a corporate setup. What is a corporate setup? What was the fundamental difference, the one difference between know. the two? I didn't know. I didn't know what is a corporate setup, except when I joined the corporate back after like it was 12 years. Sure. Not a corporate setup is basically not in terms of number of employees, not in terms of uh, how big or the business lines or the revenue or like the turnover, or all of this. In my opinion, is the processes of how you do things. So corporate setup for me is just like, when you disengage, when you're not seeing exactly the end-to-end achievement, you know, happening mm-hmm. in front of you. Because whenever you're in different structure, it's about the culture of how to build the organization around the, the delivery. And probably this helped me a lot in creating this ground up because no matter what is your role in any big corporate, you cannot really get the skills of building a company, you know, mm-hmm. building a company, meaning people and, you know, like engagement and processes and technical and financial Let's take a step back for a second and tell me the origin story in your elevator pitch. And give me the short version of your origin story. You were sitting there and when did you realize that you had the kernel of a business idea? No, actually the preparation was not sudden. It was almost done over iterations of pitch and product and from where to start and how to make it, how to sell it. Three years. Because three years. Three years. Because... It was my business as usual area, mm-hmm. but not like not the and same. And this was at Link. Uh, this was at Link Development. Okay. Yeah, I was serving this sector. I was handling the department inside Link Development. Uh, you know, like doing all of the solutions for the telco sector in a way. And one of the core products was all around a legacy product that was built inside Link.net and then exported. And it was all about consumer billing. And very complex provisioning, you know, related to network and, you know, all of this. So it was a combination of consumer side, but also the telco related side as well. Yeah. And everybody was saying, we need to resell this product. We need to resell this product. And you go this normal sales B2B kind of. And then I I, I was all of that time. This was the age of the cloud, Mm -hmm. the as a service concept and all of this. There was this keyword that I was reading about like like billing as a service, you know, and it was a perfect timing for the technology side, readiness, cloud and all of this, but like also for the market acceptance, the consumer market acceptance. Mm -hmm. Because what I was doing is that like I was building a payment method that has to be chosen by consumers as an alternative payment method to the others, you know, like everybody knows. So I'm not going to use MasterCard. I'm not going to use Visa. It's not because I don't like them. It's just Mm -hmm. because I don't have them, you know. So this is the idea. So I was saying, how come in our region, okay, uh, we have all of this potential of the highest gross curves in the world in terms of e-commerce and m-commerce and smartphone penetration and consumer appetite and digital and the apps economy and all of this and we cannot transform them into successful businesses so you have to monetize whatever way you have to monetize so you cannot have a business case you cannot scale unless you have a decent way of monetization that can scale telcos are there they are the only ecosystem in the world who can fix the problem of access under percent access of the population and they are very well established in terms of acceptance Mm -hmm. and billing to their customers over years and years and years and we don't have to think about penetration or like you know like building a new 
onboarding of that because everybody has a phone number and everybody's connected. And this generation and or like more and more of the population in our world, in our EMEA, is just like ready to click the button online on the smartphone to do whatever they want to do. And yet everybody has a phone set. Yeah. So why not bridge this gap with an alternative payment method? This was my pitch to my investors, you know, just very obvious. Who was your first client? Orange. Orange. In, in okay. Egypt. Was it called Orange at the time or still Mobinil? Mobinil. Mobinil. Okay. But like back then I started in three markets, not in Egypt only. So I started with, in parallel, with Egypt, UAE and Saudi. Okay. My first launch was in Jan 2014 with, with Mobinil. In April it was with Do, and I think April, May it was with it's a lot in Saudi. But it was very high level proof of concept, you know. So you have to tune the products, the wrapping, the technology, the operation, the buy-in, the contracts, the and then the pitch to the merchants, which is the, the proof of concept. And, and it's just like two years down the road, then it just like worked. I remember those days when I was looking with my counterpart in, in, in the operator side saying, ah, finally, we have one page of transactions. Yes. <laughs> it was that difficult. So between those days and now, we are in all operators in all 18 countries of MENA. Who are your clients? Any online device that the consumer themselves interact with, the consumer themselves want to consume the services and products inside those kind of interfaces or products. Mm -hmm. And typically in our region, they wouldn't be able to consume it because they cannot pay. So we started from the easy part like gaming industry, local publishing mm -hmm. and local startups, etc. Education platforms, reading platforms. We developed from scratch the regional digital video on demand and streaming media kind of uh, platforms to use this alternative payment method because mm -hmm. this was not typically even built into their products in a way. So it's just like it was a big sector for us. Marketplaces. Now we onboarded like this alternative payment method for Google Play, for Apple Store. What's the flow of money here? You've, you've gone out and onboarded the merchant. I want to buy two tickets to the movies tonight. I don't have a credit card. So I choose to pay through TPay. Is that what I see as my option? No. no. What happens? No, and this is also a very strategic decision that we took is that you will see an alternative payment method called mobile payment. Okay. It starts from the telcos and telcos were not built in an efficient way to be payment processors. Yes. So merchant, uh, you made the transaction, transaction is recorded real time. And then I reconcile every month with the operator. Again, the technology is API. So it's real time. I mean, there is no way you, there is a difference between numbers. So it's a guaranteed revenue. Um, payment process is always a problem. Hard currency is always a problem. Exporting or like being capable to act as payment hub for international players was, you know, like challenging in a way. And at the beginning, we were working with settlement terms back to back with the operators, you know, like uh, six months and eight months. Of course, but with the advancement of the mobile wallet and the balance and all of this, there are other more sophisticated mechanisms that even operators are willing to do. I consider this year as another wave of possibilities because of more acceptance happening around the fintech and mm -hmm. the ecosystem and the governments of the MIA. <laughs> 
Tell me how you make profit. It's transactional processing. The more my partner grows, mm-hmm. the more the more he expands, the more he gets active base, the more he do cross border or like add countries, the more I am happy. So so my KPI is all around my partner's KPI. Okay. You know, in a way. And what's in it for the mobile operator? They're taking a fee as well? Very high one. <laughs> Very high margins. Yeah, it was challenging to start from a point that is sane. So putting the standard of the industry, this is what TPay had managed to do in MENA that is comparable to something that people can relate to. So when we told the operator guys, you know, Google Play, they take 70-30. So actually, it's a payment method. You cannot do less than that. And even talking about these ratios back then with some countries and some operators, it was really challenging, you know, really challenging. Making It is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Is TPA a great business? Not yet. Not yet? What are you missing to make it a great business? Not yet. I am very proud about where we are in terms of pace and in terms of growth and in terms of access to next next story. However, what I need to to understand is just like how to scale, how to master the scaling. What are the challenges of scale? I mean, you have grown into 18 markets, you said, Mm. with how many operators? 38. 38 operators. Um, We want to discuss with you how you chose these markets and what your strategy was, but you have scaled in that respect. So the challenges are internal then, not external? I crossed the... Maybe most difficult part, which is a source of fund and money and budgets and and profitability and all of the stuff. So on these KPIs, I did a great business. On the business development, on the commercial kind of landscape creation, we are great business. The challenge is always not 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 any of those. The challenge is always how to to add more people and does not get you positive agility environment in a way or another. How many people are you guys today? We're we're touching the 80 somehow. Yeah. You asked me about all of those expansions. The whole idea of uh, platforms is just like how to scale with technology. I mean, like if you go to a new country or it's not a ratio of uh, adding uh, more people in order to serve the country. So it is a very slim a margin kind of uh, industry. So scale is very important. So leveraging on the technology, efficiency, automation, uh, less people in the front end is just like the name of the game, you know, but like always in the kitchen, you have to be able also to maintain and to choose what to do on a daily basis. So I mean, if you want to scale, every single employee in your organization, no matter how big or small, have to be able to decide as if they are their own, you know, like they, they are the, the CEO of the company. That's an interesting way of looking at it. It's just like they don't, but like <laughs> they have to. <laughs> That's your goal, huh? And they don't believe that I want them to, you know? So it's just like a, sort of a, a, bigger, a, bigger, a bigger problem than, than, yeah. How do you solve that? I'm trying. I'm learning. I solve it exactly as you're building a product. So you read inputs, you change, you just like have the guts to change and challenge all the time, all the time, all the time, instead of just giving up. You've grown organically and you've grown through acquisition. Why did you go the acquisition route? 
it was strategic because and you cannot over calculate everything and you cannot just like think that that, that the model or your expectations would, would work 100%. So execution, I always say, sometimes overthinking is a failure strategy compared mm-hmm. to fast execution in any direction. You have to execute fast. Why, why did you feel the need to go by DCB Egypt? What problem were you solving or opportunity were you capturing? It, it was an opportunity. Time is everything, yeah? So I want to fast track you know, like the growth of Etosalat has been one of the, the operator, has been one of the latest in the country compared to, and again, part of the strategy is you have to have access to, with the same weight to all of the market. So I, I just said, okay, instead of building it from scratch, let's take whatever is almost close to make you, you know, like faster in doing it. How I thought about it, you know, like I will not wait and grow it one by one. Let's just like somebody else had a node that is bigger than yours. Take it. Yeah. So you were buying a contract and a set of relationships effectively. Mm-mm. Was the integration period easy because of that or was there... Because of that, this was a very simple acquisition because it doesn't have the typical challenges of uh, processes and technical and people. So it was very straightforward and clear. It was small as well. Very small. How big? It was very It was very small. But more and more now at my stage and was, was the bigger access, you know, like the new dreams of, of my new investors as well, is that we're executing more and more into this direction. Some more mergers and acquisitions in your, in your future. Hopefully, yeah. Anything soon? Hopefully, yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. We'll check back with you on that. (laughs) You were incubated, as you said, at A15. They exited to Helios. How did that process go for you? The exit process? Yeah. It was a different decision than typically most of the startups would do. No, 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 no. I want to, for example, build a bigger machine and get a higher valuation and getting smaller, you know, like shareholders. It was a completely different strategy. And this is actually, I owe to my understanding and the learned lessons of the economy, of the, this whole startup economy, international or global, is that the success is paying your investors, is getting cash. I mean, how do you measure success with just like valuations? Look at how many companies with huge valuations and nobody got cash. We had learned lesson trying to raise two million, you know, in the early 2015 something. And all of the ecosystem of the investors did not really understand the potential. And we just like, we turned profitable. We just forget about the whole raising idea okay. and, and we moved on. Four years down the road, it was a time to do kind of a liquidation event. And then we said, okay, let us be bold. Let us go out. Let us see where are we, okay? Because I believe... We have good enough kind of company and product and potential and proposition. So it was amazingly, you know, surprising. And I was really proud during the process. So the process, of course, it was painful and it was new and it was tough and it affected the business and affected me doing the things that I would like to do and all of the stuff. But it allowed me to see that I can even dream bigger. Did you sell shares in the transaction yourself? My shares? Yeah. I am running out a big part of it with the new investors. Yeah. With the new investors, okay. So I cash out some. You cash out some and you, you rolled forward the rest. Was it hard to decide to sell a share of your baby? No. No. Do you know why? Why? Tell me. Because 
I chose those people because they can create bigger value for me. It's just like a partnership. It's just like about you cannot do more on your own. If you want to take it further in terms of um, gross exposure, access capability, then you need to choose a partner who can do that. Why Helios? Why were, why were they the right people to go with? They are not a typical private equity fund in terms of how they do things. I mean, I was lucky enough because they really engage very closely with their heart to make this business, you know, grow on all levels. And it's very difficult to find somebody who believes in the business and who's really engaged on the execution and the strategy. It was a good choice to have my expansion plan happening. It's just like endless opportunity. It's very exciting, you know. <laughs> Is an IPO on the cards for you guys in the future? We'll see. <laughs> 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 What's the biggest change you've seen in consumer behavior in the region, if you can say that there's one change since you started? I never expected that females would be the more and more of the high growth addressable market in many of the sectors I serve. Really? Which does make sense, you know, if you think about it, you know, in our region, you know, but like it was never by design, you know, at the beginning we're thinking that those type of use cases are usually consumed by only the young generation or like the small age group. How has being a CEO changed you as a person? I think being a CEO coming from, a, whether male or female, coming from a technical background in this new age does help you a lot in terms of having this analytical thinking and problem solving and, you know, like all of these help me to be capable over years, despite the different technology and being away, I was just like to always have a feeling of the product. Okay. Because it's pure technical. Of course, I don't know the details, but like all of those concepts. So it's very easy for me to understand. A lot of usually CEOs coming from non-technical backgrounds would find it very difficult to relate to even, not to understand. Yeah. What's the last time that you lost your temper in the office or lost your temper over a problem? Weird enough, it was in the early days, not recently. Okay. So I used to be really, I lose my temper. Not easy, but like I never do it exceptionally, but like just because I was, for example, trying to solve a problem or like trying to address something, it's not like having a fight. Two years ago, I was more edgy than now. <laughs> okay. When's the last time you laughed at the office? You laughed? Yeah. I laugh, I laugh every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Even at problems, by the way. That's the best way to deal yeah, with sometime, them. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I think one out of every two investment bankers, commercial bankers, and lawyers that we talk to on a regular basis, and we deal with a lot of those folks, either is quitting to start a startup in fintech, wants to quit to do a startup in fintech, or you know has somebody on their team who's left to do that. What's the biggest piece of advice that you would give them? They need to have enough of the substance I was talking about in order to make it happen. It's just like everybody else, any entrepreneur at any stage. However, definitely, definitely the ones coming from this background have much, much, much more edge in terms of experience and unlearned lessons. Some of the toughest jobs for entrepreneurs done chats, you know, like they are the experts. Actually, they know how to do it. So they, they're very efficient and, and optimized in doing it. So this is their edge. Now, the other side is just like, 
how to create a product and be passionate about it and create a company and get people around you. This is the most difficult part to create and most difficult part to maintain when you grow. How necessary is it for someone like that to have a technical co-founder? Technical has to be part of the story anywhere, everywhere. Technical co-founder might not be a pure like labeled tech industry related just like it can be anyone well educated and well exposed you know like everybody now can learn anything online anything online so if even if the product is not related to technology even if the product is not primarily dependent on technology you cannot create anything in the future without understanding or onboarding or researching or getting advice even from pure technical AI and data and this is now just like uh, you know like basics you know you have to you have to have them no matter what before we started recording you were talking about statistics that suggest that not only older entrepreneurs but women entrepreneurs tend to have a higher success rate than men and people start earlier why are women special in that respect why do women have a higher success rate I would say that it is related to how the women function in a way. It's just like more and more, if you tell them all of the skills they do in a day-to-day basis, even the most, you know, simple, naive version of that is basically having a very complex execution and processing capabilities and adaptation and psychology and um, embracing and all of that. So I think it's just this nature, if it is coupled with experience and education and source of funds, very important, hmm. they always do things differently. Why should I buy a share of TPay? Yeah, two things I would say. First is that we have a scalable enough network effect potential that is of huge value and very difficult to replicate versus time. And second is because we are in the right time of uh, making use of this asset. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. This season is brought to you by CIB and by the United States Agency for International Development, And that's how we're making it.